All right. Well, welcome everyone to this week's edition of uh, Commercial Real Estate 101. Um, for those of you guys who are just tuning in for the first time, we actually started this meetup uh, roughly April. It's in April of 2021 or 2020, I'm sorry. Uh, and since then, we've been just kind of growing and expanding. And obviously, we get to people to tune in from all over across the country. So it's really awesome uh, that we've been what a group we've been able to grow. And today, we actually have an awesome speaker, uh, Harry Borders with Borders and Borders here located in Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, and we're going to be talking about a concept that is extremely pertinent, especially in today's environment. Uh, a lot of investment activity going on, and that is 1031 exchanges. So welcome, Harry. Uh, really excited to have you. Thanks for having me. Oh, for sure. So to start out, what we usually like to do is we like to learn a little bit more about the person that's that's coming on the show. So if you if you don't mind, could you kind of give us a little high level overview of who you are and um, what what got you in the I guess the real estate sure. business? Sure. So I've been uh, doing closings for 30 years. This is my 30th year, hard to believe, because I'm only 29 years old. But nonetheless, somehow that math works for me still. Um, I work with my brother in the practice that my father started, and he has turned it over to John and myself. And now I have a daughter that is an attorney with us as well. And John's got a son that's in law school currently, and he'll be joining us before too long. Um, we started doing 1031 exchange work probably 25 years ago, and there is a lot of activity in the 1031 exchange world. There's a lot of fear that they may go away, which is making people jump and make decisions that they otherwise would have delayed making. But they're, they're a, a very important component of commercial real estate uh, in, in society today. Um, <clears throat> I read a statistic that 40% of either buyers or sellers or both of commercial transactions are involved in a 1031 exchange. So it's a great way to preserve uh, tax savings and give generational wealth because if you own real estate and you pass away with a highly appreciated piece of real estate, your heirs get it at a stepped up basis. So those taxes disappear completely. Again, that may change under Biden, but as of right now, that's what the rule is. So 1031 exchanges are, are really, really strong tools uh, and realtors need to know enough about them to be able to speak to them and clients need to know enough about them to know that you can save a ton of money by doing these things. Awesome. Yeah, I know. And I have hundred percent agree, but I guess for those of us who are newer to the game, let's say, let's say they don't know exactly what a 1031 exchange is. Can you kind of explain a high level overview of what exactly it is? I sure can. So if I own a piece of real estate and it goes up in value, which is the goal, but not always the reality, but generally that's the way that it works. If I own a piece of real estate and it goes up in value, and if I sell it in less than a year, that would be short-term capital gains tax. And the tax rate for short-term capital gains tax is whatever your family's tax bracket is. So wherever you are, you would be taxed on that amount of a short-term capital gains tax real estate hold. So for example, I on occasion will do a retail flip. So I'll buy a piece of property, fix it up, put it on the market and sell it. I've got to cull out of my profits enough to cover my tax liability, which is the same tax bracket that I'm in, whatever that may be. If I own real estate and it's gone up in value and I've held it for longer than a year, 
and then I choose to sell it, then I'm going to be taxed on long-term capital gains tax. The federal long-term capital gains tax rate is starts at 15%. It goes to 20% for super crazy high income earners, which is most certainly not me and not most of my clients as well. So for most of us, it's going to be a 15% tax bracket. I don't know what the tax bracket is in other states, but in Kentucky, the Kentucky long-term capital gains tax rate is 6%. So if you're a Kentucky person, you're going to pay 21% of any gains that you realize at the sale of a piece of real estate. So back in the 80s, uh, the IRS, in conjunction with Congress, passed a law that allowed for you to take the money from the sale of one piece of real estate, transfer that money into another piece of real estate, thereby deferring, not avoiding, but thereby deferring the capital gains tax. So effectively, whatever amount I would be giving to Uncle Sam, I get to keep it as a tax-free, interest-free loan from the IRS until I sell and don't exchange. But again, that all goes away if I exchange, 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 die. Because when I die, my kids, my basis may be here. If I sell it the day before I die and it's worth this, I'm going to be taxed on that. If I die today and my kids sell it tomorrow, their basis has stepped up to the fair market value at my death and there would be no taxes on it. That's capital gains taxes. There could be death taxes depending on how wealthy the family is, uh, but for capital gains taxes, you could avoid that. Yeah, and it also recaptcha, is that correct? You can also- Absolutely. Some, so Absolutely. If, if you depreciate a property over li your lifetime, obviously the base is gonna be depreciated because of that. And and that, that's also a savings that you can experience. Yeah, absolutely, for sure. Absolutely, awesome. for sure. So I guess one thing I wanted to ask is related to the property rules, because this is something that's pretty common, obviously within the, 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 the 1031 exchange. Can you explain what that is? Like what sure. exactly does that, that entail? We are fortunate in that real estate is real estate is real estate. As long as we're not reinvesting in a primary residence or a second home, any kind of real estate qualifies. So, for example, we have people that get rid of single family residences and buy mailbox money in the form of a triple net lease. We have clients that sell triple net leases and buy oil and gas lease properties. We have clients that sell a farm and go into multifamily or sell multifamily and go into a farm. Any kind of real estate is like kind with any other kind of real estate. So we're fortunate as long as we're not using it enough that it would be considered our primary residence or a second home, then it qualifies. So we have a lot of people that sell single families and then buy a condo on the beach somewhere, rent it out for a couple of years and then move into it. We are currently in the middle of an $8 million exchange. We've got a $20 million exchange coming up. Um, most of the ones that we see are a million or less, but the rules are the rules are the rules. Oh, for sure. So can you explain a little bit what those rules are? Because obviously I know there's a, there's a timeline involved with a 1031 exchange. So if you could, if you can elaborate on that, I think that yep. would be super helpful. So there are two rules. One is the timing rule and one is the money rule. So let's talk about the timing rule first. And by the way, I changed my name on my screen there to show you what my email address is. So if anybody has any questions, you're welcome to reach out, harry at harryborders.com. 
Um, and because this is federal law, anybody that does 1031s can do it across the country. It's, it's not limited to an attorney in, in your footprint. Um, but regardless, so the timing rules are very, very stringent. If today I close on the sale of what I'm going to sell, that's called the relinquished property, I've got 45 days, which is not very long, in which to identify, pick out what it is that I'm going to buy. If today I close on the sale of my relinquished property, I've got 180 days to purchase what I identified within the first 45 days. Those rules, there's no relaxing those rules. They were relaxed a little bit during the COVID from last year, but those rules are very stringent. It doesn't matter if it's a federal holiday. It doesn't matter if it's a weekend or anything else. It is what it is. There's no excuse. So if you don't identify within 45 days, you pay the taxes. If you identify within the 45 days and you don't close within the 180 days, you pay the taxes. So the timing rules are, are very strict. There's no getting around those. The money rule, there's two money rules. The money rules are more relaxed and I'll explain that in a second. So the money rules work like this. If I sell something for X number of dollars, I need to buy as my replacement property or properties, meaning I can buy more than one. I have to buy at or above the purchase price. So if I sold something for a million bucks, I've got to buy something for a million bucks. Now, the million bucks will be net of any commission. So if there were costs associated with the sale, that comes off of it. So if I had a million bucks net of commission, I need to replace a million bucks net of commission. The second rule is if I don't identify in the time that I need to, let me rephrase that. If I identify within the 45 days and don't end up closing, then your money is held hostage for the entire 180 days. So it's really important that you do all your due diligence before the 45 days has expired, because once you've identified, you're stuck. So money rule number one, up or even in sales price. Money rule number two, up or even in equity. So if I sell for a million bucks, I need to buy for a million bucks. If I've got $600,000 of equity, I need to replace $600,000 of equity. There's a myth in the industry that I also have to replace the mortgage amount. I don't. If I want to come to the table with an extra $400,000, I can do that. So I've got to go up or even in sales price, up or even in equity. Those are the only two money rules. Now, those rules, as I said, are not strict. I had a client that they sold a piece of property for four million bucks. They told me that they wanted to go on the world's most fabulous vacation. They wanted to pull money out so they could go on the world's most fabulous vacation. I said, no problem. And this was Kentucky. Whatever the cost of the most fabulous vacation is, take that times 1.21. That's the 21% for the, for the capital gains tax. And then we figured in the depreciation as well. Put that in an account, go on the world's most fabulous vacation, spend it however you want to spend it. That worked out just fine. Oddly enough, their definition, they were, they were literally the millionaire next door. You would never know it. Their fabulous vacation was four days, all expenses paid in Branson, Missouri. <laughs> they just made 4 million bucks and they spent four days in Branson, Missouri. But regardless, those rules are flexible. So if you don't meet those criteria, 
then it's fine to, to violate the rule. You just would be taxed on the amount that you violate. For sure. And that's considered a boot. That's the term. That's correct. That's correct. Awesome. And then I, there is also some property rules, right? So the identification process. So could you walk us through exactly what that means? So the sure. three property rule, the, the 200% rule, maybe sure. even the 95% rule, although it's not as yep. common, but. Yep. Yeah. So the, the main rule on identification is you can identify up to three properties, regardless of what the value of those properties are. In other words, if you sold for a million, you can identify a property that costs a million and you can identify a property that costs 5 million and you can identify a property that costs 10 million. Doesn't make any difference. As long as you end up purchasing one of the three, then you're allowed to violate, then, then you are allowed to identify three properties. If you are going to identify more than three, for example, I sell a big strip center and I wanna go into single family. You're allowed to identify more than just three, as long as the total value of everything you identified does not exceed 200% of what you sold. So we represented a lady that lived on Blankenbaker Road at the time that Southeast Christian came in to Louisville. Those of you that are from Louisville, you'll know where that is. She sold the farm. She had, effectively, she had zero basis. She bought it for next to nothing. She sold it for four million bucks. At the time of this, this transaction, she was going to end up paying a million dollars in taxes. So we, and it wasn't me, it was her realtor that recognized that this was an option for her. The realtor brought her to me. I explained to her that we could save her a million bucks right out of the gate just by doing a 1031. She invested her $4 million into 40 approximately $100,000 houses that she was going to rent. Well, 40 is greater than three in case you're math struggling. But because she didn't identify more than 200% of the 4 million bucks, in other words, she couldn't identify more than $8 million in value. Because she didn't do that, she was fine. So she ended up, and that was quite a hurdle to be able to accomplish that. The, the recommendation that we give to people all the time on 1031 exchanges is start shopping long before your clock starts ticking. So when we were negotiating for her purchase, her sale of that $4 million farm, we made the purchaser go hard 90 days prior to the closing. In other words, we're going to remove all the due diligence. All that stuff is done. Now we go hard and we're not going to close for 90 days. The reason for that was because she had to find 40 houses in a tight market within 45 days. Well, now she had 45 days on the backside plus 90 days on the front side to get her ducks in a row. The biggest mistake that investors make is they don't go shopping soon enough and then they buy something because they're running out of time as opposed to just paying the taxes. I don't wanna pay taxes if I don't have to pay taxes. But that's the biggest mistake people make is they rush around like chickens with their head cut off and then they buy something and ultimately they're sorry that they bought it because it didn't fit within the criteria of what they were hoping to accomplish. So it's uh, 1031s are tricky, but they're not all that tricky. Uh, there's a 95% rule that you, can, that you can utilize as well. If you're gonna exceed the 200% rule, then you have to purchase 95% of what you identified. But Raphael, just as you had just said, 
that doesn't come about very frequently. Most of the time, most people are looking to just replace what they've sold with what they're going to purchase. Oh, for sure. No, I 100% agree with you on that front. So can you explain the concept of like kind? Because that's another con- that's another question that I often get asked is like, what is like kind? Can I sell this piece of property and go buy Bitcoin? I know that's the latest craze recently. So yeah. is, that, is that something you can do? Uh, you have to buy real estate. Now, prior to the latest tax act that Trump put in, uh, there were such a thing as a personal property exchange. Those are gone. So now it's real estate only. And it is, it is you, whoever, whoever the taxpayer is that owns the real estate must be the taxpayer, the same taxpayer that makes the purchase. In other words, if I have an LLC tax as a partnership with my brother and we're selling a piece of property and going to do an exchange, we have to have the same LLC taxes partnership that makes the purchase of the replacement property. Now we run into problems where I want to reinvest my money, but my brother doesn't want to reinvest his money. If we get to that, if we get a hold of that situation before we put our properties on the market, there is a workaround. And the workaround would be that I pay for 95% of what he owns in exchange for me deeding him. So I would literally deed him 50% of the property from the LLC to him or an entity that he chooses in exchange for him assigning the membership interest that he's got back to me. The problem is the partnership requires two. If he gets out completely, then it's no longer a partnership. So I've got to either retain him with a two or 3% membership interest in the LLC or bring in a spouse or an adult child or something of the sorts. So, you know, they can get a little bit tricky, but it's, it's almost always something that we can work out. The, big one that we're working on right now, the $6 million one that I was telling you about, that's a really tricky one because it's got probably 50 limited partners that they do not want to join along in their exchange. So fortunately, they got to me before they started marketing the properties because we were able to work it out. But if they hadn't done that, it it could have been a problem for them. So what is Lycon? Real estate is real estate is real estate. Any kind of real estate that is bought for the purpose of an investment, qualifies for 1031 exchanges. And oddly enough, an oil and gas lease is a really good option for replacement properties. They will generate on average between 9 and 11%, and you get favorable tax treatment on the the money that you're making off them. The government is encouraging us to invest in those things. So we park 1031 money where the the client can't figure out where they want to go, we will frequently park them in an oil gas lease for a year or two until they can figure out what they want to roll that out of and put into something else. Well, that's an interesting strategy. We'll probably dive that into that a little later for sure. So when you're going through the process, let's say I'm, I have a piece of property. I've decided that I want to do 1031 exchange. I find a buyer. We put my property under contract. Now I'm looking to go identify property that are going to, is, is going to be something that I'm interested in purchasing. Are there any things you need to take into consideration within the contract that you submit as a purchase agreement that, you know, what, what are some of the provisions you need to take into consideration as you're doing that to make sure that the, the process goes smoothly? So it's, it's a little bit tricky because we have been in situations before where we telegraph to the seller of, of the replacement property, 
that it's going to be part of a 1031 exchange. And then they lever the heck out of it. Yeah. Because if I've identified a piece of property and my 45 days have passed, and that seller knows that I have identified them, that seller can use that information against me. So there, you can either have it as a boilerplate provision in your contract that says buyer or seller may perform a 1031 exchange and both parties agree to cooperate with the other. If it's just a standard provision, it's perfectly fine. Most agents don't have that in there automatically. Commercial guys typically do, but a lot of folks don't put it in there automatically, which is perfectly fine. We just create it, we put it at the closing and it gets signed at the closing. So most commercial contracts are just going to have in it that it could be a part of a 1031 exchange. So that's the proper language. And if anybody needs that language, shoot me an email and I'll email it over to you. Sure. And, and, and to clarify as well, um, I think, I don't know if you mentioned this at the beginning, but you have to keep the funds with, for, within a qualified intermediary. I mean, you can't retain any of the funds at any point within the transaction. Otherwise it could nullify the the, the exchange. That, that, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. So there is a qualified intermediary that is a third party. And that third party, oddly enough, cannot be me. Because if I'm giving tax advice to the client, then I am a disregarded qualified intermediary. I can't do that work for you, which is perfectly fine. We've contracted that out with a local attorney that has established at our direction a single purpose LLC that only holds money for 1031 exchanges. So it works fine, but, but you are exactly right. You can't get the money. Now, it's a little bit different with a 1033 exchange. 1033 exchange is where the government's coming in and they're taking your property for some governmental purpose. That's a 1033 exchange and you can keep the money in your own account and you only have, and you have two full years to reinvest it. But you're absolutely right. And, and you don't need to remember all these rules. You just need to remember when you have a client that is selling property that he's held for at least a year and is making money, you want to introduce the concept of a 1031 exchange to them. I'll take it from there or whoever you choose as your qualified intermediary or your exchange company will take it from there. You don't need to know all the details. I'm happy to share all those details, but you might fall asleep on me. For sure. No, no. And, and, and so I thought I'd dive into a question that I often get asked uh, from clients that are interested in doing 1031 exchanges. And that's the concept of performing the 1031 exchange, retaining the, per the, the ownership of the property, and then doing a refinance at a certain point to pull out, you know, the equity that you have within that property. And now it's, you know, you essentially eliminate the, the tax liability that you had. Can you explain to me if, if that number one, how does, how can you properly do that? If you can properly do that, or is that kind of frowned upon? How, how do you, how do you approach that? So a pre-exchange refinance is a no-no. A post-exchange, when it's 100% done, refinance is acceptable. So if your client wants to take 100 grand and do whatever they want to do with it, then they're allowed to do it, but they need to do it after the exchange is done, not on the front side. Which again is why I like to get a hold of the taxpayer before they're ready to put this property on the market would be the ideal time to do this because we can have all these conversations and we can set all the pieces in play the way we need to so that we don't run into challenges because we run into challenges frequently. 
No, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yeah. So, I mean, again, and, and that's one of the strategies that a lot of people use because of that reason. You can avoid the taxes on the front end, you know, the, the capital gains, recapture, whatever else. And then once you have possession of the property, you can then refinance out and utilize the, the, the equity that you've taken out of the property to go now invest in other properties if that's what you want to do or if you want to, you know, take that vacation or whatever. Obviously, there's got to be specifications on what you can use those funds for. But but I've seen people do that from an investment standpoint, take out the money and then now go buy some other properties that they're interested yep. in. So yeah, that's awesome. Okay. So as far as the standard exchange, like the delay exchange, obviously is the, the, the exchange that a lot of people know. Uh, how, how about a reverse exchange? I know it's not as common, but can you kind of explain the concept uh, for those, for those in the audience who don't necessarily know? Sure. And actually, those are a whole lot easier uh, if you can afford to get financing without having already sold your replacement property. And the reason for that is because if I sell, then I got to go out to this great big wide world and identify. But if I do it in reverse, a reverse exchange is rather than selling and then buying, it is buying and then selling. So I start shopping now. I find what I want to buy. I buy it. Oddly enough, I buy it in the name of the qualified intermediary. I don't buy it in my name or the taxpayer's name. It's held in the name of the qualified intermediary, but regardless. So I purchase it, and now I've got 45 days to identify what I want to sell. Well, I already know what I want to sell because that's why I'm doing this exchange in the first place. So reverse exchanges, the, the catch on them is you've got to be able to come up with enough money or borrow enough money to make the purchase of the replacement property prior to the sale of the relinquished property. But if you can pull it off, it makes it a whole lot easier. That 45 days is like that in a straight exchange, but it's a, it is a snap in a reverse exchange because I already know what I own. And now I just have to decide what I own that I want to sell. And then I've got six months to sell it. So reverse exchanges actually are easier on the taxpayer to do if they're capable of ending up getting the financing that they need. For sure. Oh, that's some great advice. So if, if I'm approaching someone like you uh, and I'm trying to determine whether or not performing a 1031 exchange is right for me, what, what are some of the things you need to consider prior to doing it? Because again, it may not be right for everyone. Um, there's, there's obviously a lot of rules. There's a lot of strict deadlines and, and obviously each, each person's situation is going to be different. So I guess what would you think are like some of the top bullet points that people should check before they, you know, decide to perform this particular uh, process. So don't do it if you're not making a lot of money because it makes your math and your accounting more convoluted. Because for example, if I bought a property for a hundred, I sold it for 200 and I bought another property for 200. Guess what my basis in my new property is? It's a hundred. It's not 200. I paid 200 for it, but because I rolled the hundred into the 200, my basis is not what I paid for it, it's the old one. The math just gets convoluted. If, for example, I bought something for 210, now my basis is 100 plus the amount above the 200, so now it's 110 is my basis. The, the math gets confusing. We see clients all the time that are gonna make five, six, eight, ten thousand $10,000 that are gonna do a 1031 exchange. And I say, you're gonna pay more to your accountant to figure all this stuff out then you're going to pay in the taxes. Just pay the taxes and move on. Another one of the challenges, of course, is that 45-day time period. But 
they're not for everybody, but they certainly are for everybody to consider. I mentioned a little earlier about the drama and it's drama of sell, identify, don't close. That's a conversation that we have with people all the time, which is, hey, you need to know with certainty on day 45, whether you're going to do this or you're not going to do this. Because we had a client once that we had four and a half million dollars of his money tied up for six months and he couldn't do anything with it. And he was anything but happy. And then I showed him my letter, my engagement letter. And I said, see right there, remember I told you about this? Well, that's where we are. There's, there's, it's a problem if you identify and you don't purchase. So we tell people, Start on the front end before you close. Start doing your identification as best as you can. If you identify a property and it doesn't work, you can unidentify it. It's no big deal. I can explain those details to you as we go along. You just don't identify. You just take off that identification and you're fine. In an ideal world, and we don't live in an ideal world, but in an ideal world, I identify within the 45 days. I do all my due diligence within the 45 days and I close within the 45 days. Then I know that I don't have any drama at all. At the end of the year, we also have issues with taxpayers because I told you you've got 180 days to make your purchase. You lose your 180 days if you file your tax return prior to the 180 days. What, Harry? So here's what that looks like. We had a client that sold a property in December. It qualified for the exchange because they held it for a business purpose for at least a year. So it fit just fine. They sold it in December. They, in theory, had 45 days to identify. And in theory, they had 180 days to close. But there's an obscure rule that says you've got 180 days to close or when you file your tax returns, for the year of the sale. So I sat them down, I explained it to them, I showed it to them in writing. They went to one of the big box, one of the big box franchises that do taxes. You could probably figure out which one it is. They went there and they said, nope, it's not a problem. We're gonna go on and file your tax return. Well, it killed their exchange. They lost $125,000 and they ended up suing the tax preparer because they didn't understand the rule. So there's a lot of ways to screw it up um, but there's a lot of ways to save a whole bunch of money by doing it as well. Yeah. And I think the lesson there that you just mentioned is to get those people involved early in the process, like reach out to someone like you as a real estate attorney, make sure your accountant understands the process and they're well-informed about what you're trying to do. And obviously with the inter intermediate area that's re required within the process, but you're right. I think the, the big lesson there is just to get people involved early. If you're in the brokerage business, having these types of individuals at uh, your fingertips to be able to ask questions to, if you have any questions is crucial. So um, yeah, that's phenomenal. So what I wanted to go ahead and do it uh, just before we start opening up to questions, I wanted to ask what um, is, I guess, uh, some, some resources that people can tap into that are free that can kind of explain this process a little bit further um, prior to, you know, opening up to questions. So if you want to shoot me an email, Harry at HarryBorders.com, I've got a really good, it's probably a four page description of what an exchange is, what works, what doesn't work, these rules, the 45 days, the 200%, all that stuff is all spelled out in as lay person terms as I could figure out how to do. 
So you want a general nutshell of what this looks like. This is going to give you some pretty good details. And again, if you have any of the rubber hits the road, holy cow, what do I do now? Questions ask. I'm, I'm happy to ask to answer. For sure. Yeah, for sure. So now what we're going to go ahead and do is we're going to open up to questions. So if you, if you guys don't mind, just because there's so many people on the Zoom call, if you could just type them away in the chat box. And I'll also be checking uh, Facebook to see if uh, we can have some questions as well. But we'll go ahead and get started. Um, so... I guess, well, Mohammed, I was asking, what is the amount you can start with? I'm assuming, I mean, I don't think there's any limit on what you can and can't start with. Um, no, there is. And, 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 you know, you've got to, you've got to evaluate what the qualified intermediary is going to charge versus what you're going to save. So a little bitty single family house, we're going to, our fees start at 750 bucks. We know what our competition is. So we're always below that, but our fees start at 750 bucks. If you're going to save $3,000 and you're paying me 750, I'm going to tell you not to do it. Um, but our prices go up from there. Generally, I don't, I don't think we've ever charged more than 1500 bucks and that's on a, on a big expensive complicated one. So. Okay. Well, that's great advice. So Ronaldo, Reynaldo, uh, Hey, what, how's it going? Uh, he is asking my clients going to sell here in Chicago, Illinois and buying a property in Texas. He already put a deposit on a new property and had, and put the property in Chicago. Hey, he hasn't put property in Chicago. I'm sorry. Let me, let me reread it. Sorry. I just want to make sure that I'm right, reading this correctly. So my client is going to sell here in Chicago, Illinois and buy a property in Texas. He already put a deposit on a new property, but had not put the property in Chicago for sale yet. He just got back and gave me the news. Can the sellers, can the sellers still do a 1031 exchange and still use the 1031 exchange rules? Absolutely. For sure. No, no question whatsoever. Now we've got a question as to whether or not they're going to buy before they sell or sell before they buy. But again, there's, they've not done anything that would contaminate their exchange at this point. So absolutely. Yes. They can still do a 1031 exchange. Now at the time that they do their actual closing, if they took non exchange funds as their deposit, which that's what this scenario is, they took their own money, put that down as their good faith deposit. On the closing statement, we want to make sure that they don't get a credit for that, but instead they get a check back because we want to use, we want to make sure that we're using actual exchange funds in the exchange, not personal funds that came in before the fact. So other than that little nuisance, no, there's Ronaldo, there's no issues at all with that. Awesome. Great advice. All right, Sergio. Hey, Sergio. He said, if we have a client looking to do a 1031 exchange uh, for a $1.5 million property, which he owns free and clear, would they be able to finance multiple properties that they buy with 1031 money as a down payment? Or would they need to buy ev the or every property with cash to maintain the 100% equity position? So the answer is kind of a hybrid. If they sell for 1.5 and buy for 1.5, they're going to have to put all their cash in. As we discussed earlier, they can refinance it after the 1031 ex exchange is, is done. Perfectly fine. But if they wanted to buy $4.5 million, they would put their $1.5 million as the down payment, and they would go out and borrow $3 million. And now they've got a $4.5 million investment or whatever the numbers would work out to be. So the answer is yes, you can do it either way. You can't pull cash out without being taxed on it, but again, pull it out after the fact and you don't have that drama. Yeah, no, for sure. And again, I would imagine part, you would probably recommend someone who wants to use debt in order to buy 
properties uh, to probably involve a lender early on in the process to make yep. sure that they're they're aware of everything. So yeah, and especially if you're doing a reverse exchange, you want to get with your lender early in the situation because a lot of lenders, you know, we we live in a round hole world, and all of us on this call, because we do commercial real estate, that means that we are square pegs, and those square pegs don't always fit in every single round hole that exists in in the real estate world. And a reverse exchange is absolutely a square peg that we've got to figure out where it fits. And I'll tell you where it doesn't fit. It doesn't fit with the big banks that are national. They don't understand it. They don't need to understand it. They got enough business. They don't care. It works just fine with the small local banks where I can actually have a conversation with them and explain to them the collateral is exactly the same. Everything should work out just fine. And it does with small local banks, but big banks, they don't, they don't need to learn new tools. They've got enough business without it. So other than that, no, no issues at all. Yeah, I know for sure. I, I echo that sentiment as well. Just, just from the experience dealing with larger banks versus regional banks or even smaller banks that are primarily local. I mean, their underwriting criteria is a lot different than yep. what you'd see at some of these larger national banks. So that's awesome. All right. So William, hey, William, he says, does it have to be from investment property to investment property or can it be from homestead to investment property? Good question. If the homestead was your primary residence for two of the last five years and you made money, you are allowed to keep, if you are single, $250,000 of gain without tax and you are able to keep $500,000 of gain without tax if you are married. So, in middle America, there's not a lot of us that are making more than two hundred and fifty or $500,000 on the sale of our house. On the coast, it happens every day. So if I am selling a house and it was just my primary residence, it had no business purpose at all, and I'm selling my house and I'm making more than two hundred and fifty dollars as a single or five hundred dollars as a married person, then I will be taxed on it and I cannot do a 1031 exchange. Now, contrast that. We had a client that had a farm. This, this is going to be bad because I'm drawing now, so y'all be bear, bear with me. So this client had a farm. It was a 40-acre farm. That looks a little bit like a farm. Okay, it doesn't really look like a farm. So he sold this to a developer. We, in conjunction with his accountant, carved off the exact amount of that property. We didn't have to subdivide it. We just contractually carved off the exact amount of that property that allowed him to maximize the full half a million dollars. So he put a half a million dollars of gain. Of, of gain. That means what he put into it, he got back automatically, but he got a half a million dollars of gain. The balance of that property was a farm. He didn't farm it very actively, but it was nonetheless categorized as a farm. So he sold the farm portion on a 1031 exchange, which was about 2 million bucks. So he walked away with the chunk, the half a million plus the value of the actual home tax-free, and he rolled the $2 million into a 1031 exchange. We see a lot of people that do that. I've got a client that I've dealt with this morning that is doing the same thing. They're selling to an apartment developer. So in conjunction with their accountant, we're carving out the amount and she's single, so it's 250. We're carving out this component is the house. This is the farm. She'll sell the farm and she'll do the 1031 on the farm. 
That's that's a great strategy. I didn't even wouldn't even have thought about that. That's that's great. That would be awesome. Um, awesome. So Nusheen, hey, hey, I hope I didn't. I hope I said it correctly. But uh, he he or she asks uh, every state. Does every state have the same time limit for a ten thirty one exchange? They do. They do. Yeah, it's a federal, right? It's a federal law. It's federal. Correct. Cool. So. Hey, Tim, he asks, what are the rules for, sec- for a second home? If the purchased property cannot be a second home, what amount of rent would exclude it from being a second home? And how long would it need to be a rental? So good question. I had a realtor couple come to me and they said, and this was just about two years ago. They came to me and they said, we have seven houses that we want to sell. And we want to buy a high up in a fancy condo complex, Raphael, you can figure out what that is, that overlooks the river. Mm-hmm. So we want to sell our houses, our rentals, and we want to buy a high level condo in a really cool location overlooking the river and the activity of downtown Louisville. And we want to move into it. Can we do that? And my answer to the question was, are you patient? And they said, define patience. And I said, patience is defined as two years. So we did the exchange, we sold the seven, we bought the one, they then rented it out. They, it has to be somewhere close to fair market rent. You know, if you, it, and my, my definition of that is if I set, if the rent should be this and I pay this and I'm, and I'm charging this to a daughter or a child or whatever, when I'm confronted with the IRS, do I giggle when I say this is fair market rent? If I'm giggling, then I need to kick it up a little bit because the IRS could catch you on that and that could be a taxable event for you. So yeah, you can do it, but you just gotta make sure that you're collecting enough rent to justify that it is still an investment. Sure, great advice. So Nusheen, I, so I will provide the contact info as well. Actually, Harry at harryborders.com, uh, she was, he was asking for, or she was asking for contact info. I'll definitely provide that in the show notes as well. So Yarden, uh, they were asking, can you explain the specifics between the equity versus purchase price in the exchange and step-ups? Sure. Yeah. Equity is the difference between what it's worth or what you're selling it for and what you owe. That doesn't necessarily mean that that is capital gains, however. So equity is your money, but if it was always your money and it wasn't gain, then there would not be taxes. In other words, I bought something for $200,000 and in 10 years, I sell it for $200,000 and I owe nothing on it. I bought for 200,000. I sold for 200,000. There would be no capital gains tax. There could be a recapture of depreciation, but there would be no capital gains tax. So equity is simply sales price or value. If you're not selling minus your debt service, that is your equity. And that's the amount that you got to reinvest. Awesome. Great, great, great advice there. All right, Dan had a question. He said, would you mind explaining who qualifies as an intermediary during an exchange? The honest answer is there are no requirements set by the IRS for who could or could not qualify for a qualified intermediary. There are some disregarded people like attorneys that are representing the taxpayer, they're disregarded. Direct family members are disregarded. Other than that, it's just got to be somebody that you trust implicitly that they're not going to do something stupid with the money. You know, there are court cases all over the place where the qualified intermediary filed for bankruptcy. And because they filed for bankruptcy, they weren't able to have the funds available. 
It wasn't their funds, but it still got tied up in the bankruptcy court, which prevented the 1031 exchange from being successful. Well, they weren't going to sue the qualified intermediary because they were bankrupt. So it's just got to be somebody or some entity that you have supreme confidence that the money is going to be safe. As long as that's the answer, it can be anybody. Your best buddy can hold your money. They can be the qualified intermediary. Yeah. And again, there are, there are, you know, attorneys and companies out there as well that can operate as qualified intermediaries. And obviously you can do a little bit of research on that front. And I'm sure there, there are if some out you, there that are very reputable. If you Google 1031 exchange, you'll come up with 15 or 20 pages of qualified intermediaries. They're, they're a dime a dozen. For sure. Definitely. All right. So Edward had a question. He said, I own a commercial property with two other partners, but they want to go their separate ways when they sell. Can we each buy a different property? That's a great question. It's a tricky question. And the, the answer is, if we get a hold of it now, the answer is yes, we can. If, for example, are, are two going one way and one going the other or all three going different directions? Because that's going to make a difference as well. Yeah, it looks uh, like he says, can we each buy a different property? So if, if we got three, uh, assuming we've got an LLC taxed as a partnership comprised of three members, if we're going to be doing an exchange imminently, then what we typically will do is we will say, you pick your property, you pick your property, you pick your property. We collectively go buy that property together. Then we amend the operator because the taxpayer has to have held the property for some extended period of time, typically at least a year. So if we bust up this partnership of three, and now we give one third to each partner, and then they go to sell it, they don't qualify for an exchange because they didn't hold it long enough. So if we can get a year ahead of this, this is a piece of cake. If we can't get a year ahead of this, it can still be done. It just requires cooperation between the partners. And if the tax liability is big enough, then the motivation to cooperate is big enough. So again, what that looks like is, all right, we got Harry, John, and Raphael. We're the partners. We want to go our own separate way. Literally, I'm going to say, Raphael, you go pick one. Harry's going to go pick one. John's going to go pick one. We're going to buy it in the same LLC. Then we're going to change the operating agreement to state that Raphael gets the burdens and benefits of the one he wanted. I get the burdens and benefits of mine. John gets the burdens and benefits of his. Two years fast forward, we carve it out where they each take their own and their own entity. So it, it's complicated. It's convoluted. But the answer is absolutely it can work. Again, the sooner we can get in front of this, the easier that this stuff happens. For sure. Oh, that's some great advice. And I'm sure that's a scenario that happens a decent amount. Like especially it happens all the time. Yeah. It happens all the time. Of course, yeah. So uh, Marquetta, yes. Yeah, so we will be providing that information. Uh, again, it's Harry at HarryBorders.com if you'd like to reach out to him. Uh, is Trevor. So Trevor has another question. He said, um, do you see people utilizing cost segregation studies with 1031 exchanges in order to per per perpetually kick the can, the, the tax deferred can down the road forever until they die? Are there other strategies investors combine to take full advantage of the tax code? The answer is yeah. yes, we see it, but we see it when you have the correct accountant. If you have a mom and pop accountant, they're not going to understand anything that you just asked. And the answer is they're not going to, that client is not going to benefit from it. 
I, I can't tell you how much of a team sport real estate investment is. I don't care if you don't have a partner. You got partners. You got partners in your realtors. You got partners in your attorneys. You got partners in your accountants. And when you've hired the right people that don't wait for you to say, hey, shouldn't I be thinking about cost segregation studies? But that says to you, you need to be talking about thinking about cost segregation studies. That's who you need to be working with. So you got to make sure that you are surrounding yourself with the expert in the area that you don't have that expertise. Your expertise should be, I know how to make money out of real estate. Go do it. Somebody else ought to have, be able to have that expertise to help you how to help you how to save some of that money that you're making out of real estate. So yes, it, it, it's available. Yeah. And so just so you guys know, for that question, we actually had Yona Weiss, who is a cost segregation expert uh, on the call, I want to say about a month ago. Uh, his, his insights are phenomenal. So he kind of explains the entire process of how do you, you, you identify each component within a building and then depreciate them on accelerated schedules in order to save you a significant amount of money in taxes. So for those of you guys who haven't checked it out, it, it is in the, the group on LinkedIn. It, I posted the video. So if you guys want to check that out, feel free to do so. Um, all right. So Chris, uh, he actually had a question. Does selling the entity have to be the buying? So does the selling entity have to be the buying entity? In other words, LLC sells, but client wants a trust to buy. It depends. For example, I have a single member LLC that is taxed as a disregarded entity. That means that there will be no state tax return file, no federal tax return file. That would be considered me. So if I had owned real estate in a single member LLC with me as the single member, and then I wanted to put that prop the replacement property in a trust that is owned exclusively by me, that works fine. But on the other hand, if the LLC is a two-person partnership LLC, then that same entity has got to be the one that makes the purchase because the taxpayer is the partnership, which means the taxpayer partnership, same partnership has to be the purchaser. Good question. That's great. Yeah. Awesome question. All right. So I think Edward was the original question he had related to uh, the, the three partners splitting off. Um, he was saying that some want to pay taxes as to not have such a big mortgage and some want to do a 1031 exchange. Is that possible? Yeah. So back to our scenario, we, we've got three. If two want to do an exchange and one doesn't, and let's assume that they're all, we're all a third. We do a deed from the partnership of one third of the real estate to this partner. Now they can put it in an LLC if they're concerned about liability risks. But we go from them to them of one third of the real estate. So there is a deed that now shows the same taxpayer LLC owns two thirds and this taxpayer owns one third. In exchange for that, this taxpayer, this member will assign the membership interest of their one third equally to the other two. So now we still have the same taxpayer partnership, but it's just comprised of two now instead of one now. So yes, it still works. Now, if we've got two that want to go away and one that wants to do the exchange, that can be done as well. We exchange, we get rid of two thirds of the real estate by a deed to these guys in exchange for almost, but not all of their membership interest to this one. 
And now this one has to, in order to preserve the tax status of a partnership, has to bring in somebody else because a partnership of one is not. So it's convoluted, but we deal with these weird situations on a daily basis. And again, the sooner we can get our heads started thinking about how to pull the stuff off, the better the chances are that we can do it. Awesome. Great advice. All right. So Leon had a question. Hey, Leon. He said, can you use funds from the sale of one property to finance capital improvements in another or to purchase debt in another property? Cannot purchase debt in another property. Cannot exchange with yourself. So I, I can't sell this one and buy something from myself. I can't do that either. But if I, for example, here's a real world one. Last year, I sold four single family houses. The average price was probably 200 grand. So there's $800,000. I bought a property that was $600,000. That's a $200,000 violation. But I was able to do what's called a build to suit exchange, which means that I had 45 days to identify what I was going to buy. I had 180 days to buy it and to complete my capital improvements. So I paid 600 for it, but before the 180 days had run out, I plowed that extra $200,000 of, of equity back in in capital improvements. So yes, that's a build to suit exchange. We do those all the time. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and that that could be phenomenal for like a redevelopment project where you have some 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 properties that you already own and you want to exchange those into a, a redevelopment project and then throw the like you said, the capital towards renovating the space. That's awesome. Great strategy. All right. So Sinto, uh, they had a question. Oh, so this will be recorded. Uh, as, as, as you guys know, I will be sending out uh, the link. Uh, we do, we do post this on my YouTube channel as well. So you feel free to check that out. It will be recorded so you guys can reference it uh, over again. All right. Um, so Captain Andy actually had a question. His, uh, he actually had, uh, when is the 1031 exchange finished or closed? In a straight exchange, I sell, I buy. When I sell and then I buy, the exchange is done. In a reverse exchange, it's the opposite. I buy and then I sell, and when I've sold, then the exchange is done. In a build-the-suit exchange, that's not done until all the money has been spent, and then the deed comes back over to whoever the taxpayer is, then we're all good to go on that one. So when the last step has occurred, a purchase in a straight exchange, a sale in a reverse exchange, or completion of the improvements in an improvement exchange or a build a suit exchange, that's when it's done. Awesome. Great advice. Okay. So Tim actually had a question. This is a great question. Can you sell a business and do a 1031 exchange? Cannot. Yeah, because it's not like kind. It's not like kind. Not like kind. It used to be an airplane was like kind with an airplane. Not anymore because they don't allow personal property exchanges. And a business would be considered legally personal property instead of instead of real estate. Awesome. Yeah. So one th question that I had for you, which is something that I get asked relatively often, is let's say I'm a business owner and I own the building that I'm in. Uh, but I want to, you know, sell this building and then potentially go buy a bigger building for my business. Is, is there an opportunity to do a 1031 exchange or is it, or is it difficult because I'm actually occupying the space myself? No, it's, we have clients that do that all the time. They outgrow their space. They've got an appreciated asset. They may as well roll that over and not have to pay taxes on it. 
Yeah, because you're essentially as the business, you're leasing the space. You have a holding company, and and your business is renting the space from you know the entity that owns it, which is technically you. But is that is that common? I'm assuming. Yeah, yeah, we we see it quite frequently. Uh, we've got one right now with an orthodontist that's doing it. Yeah, that's great. And because we had, because his realtor wisely said, "Go sit down with Harry," literally a year in advance. His, we've worked out all the bugs, and we've got no drama whatsoever. It's just smooth sailing. Awesome. And then Amanda actually had a question. She said, "Can I sell my personal house and buy a business, say laundromat or franchise, or even a franchise?" If you sell your house and you lived in it for two of the last five years and you didn't make more than 250 as a single person or 500,000 as a married person, you can sell it and do whatever the heck you want to do with money. You can spend it any way you want to spend it. The old rules as it related to sale of the primary residence said that if I sell for $100,000 in order to not have to pay the taxes on that, I had to buy something for $100,000 or more. That rule has changed. Now it is as long as I lived in it for two of the last five years and I didn't make more than 250 or 500, I can sell and I can do anything I want to do with the money. I can spend it any way I see fit, whether that be a laundromat or a business or a rental property. Yeah. But that wouldn't be a, that, that's not necessarily a 1031 exchange. That's though, not at all. That's yeah. exactly right. It's not a 1031 at all. Yeah. It's just, you it's don't need rule. to pay me for that. <laughs> awesome. Great advice. Also, I had a question related to a concept called the sale and leaseback. What the sale and leaseback would essentially be is that you're a business owner, you've occupied the space for a long period of time, and now you want to, you know, utilize some of the equity in your building by selling that to someone else. So essentially what they do is they'd um, sign a long-term lease on the building and then sell the the property to an, an, an entity as an investment property. So, you know, you're paying 5000 a month, you sell it for a million bucks, and that's, you know, the, whatever the spread is based on, you know whatever. So could you do, could you execute a 1031 exchange in that scenario as well? Sure can. Awesome. Sure so can. yeah. And, and I, I, we, that often happens a lot with, you know, people who are looking to expand their operations more rapidly. You know, if you're, yeah. you're looking, you have a franchise owner or something else, you know, you can kind of expand a lot faster by, you know, deploying the capital that you have in your equity into something else. So yep. interesting. Awesome. So does anyone, okay. James had one more question. I think we'll have time for one more. So am I correct that REIT shares do not qualify as like-kind? They did. They don't now. Now there's something called a Delaware Statutory Trust. If we, had, if we were here for, for three days, I wouldn't have enough time to explain a Delaware Statutory Trust. You don't need to know it. Basically, it's kind of sort of like a tenants in common interest where you buy, for example, a fractional share of a new fancy apartment complex. So you own a whatever, a 3% interest in an apartment complex. So you can do that, but a REIT no longer qualifies. Okay, great advice. Great questions. I thought this was yeah. real estate investment commercial one-on-one. You guys are asking some some thick, heavily, heavy, high-level questions. Oh, yeah, I know. And I think that's one of the cool things about the group that we've been able to foster is that, you know, we have people from all different walks of, you know, whether they're, you know, in the brokerage business or they're commercial investors or business owners, et cetera. So there's different ranges of questions that we've been able to get asked. But uh, I guess what we'll go ahead and do is we'll wrap up. But Harry, thank you so much for your time. If someone wanted to reach out to you guys to kind of ask more questions about this process, maybe they're going through the process themselves or, you know, they maybe had additional questions that they wanted to ask you. How could they reach out to you? 
harry at harryborders.com or 502-894-9200. 502-894-9200. Awesome. And I'll, I'll include that in the show notes as well, just so you guys know. And um, Sinto, I can, I can message you uh, how you can get in the group. It's essentially called the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup. So if you search it on LinkedIn, you should be able to find it. But Sounds great. Awesome. Well, thank you Thanks guys so me. much. Yeah, of course. It was great to see everyone. Uh, we'll see you guys next time. See you guys.